Due to the graphic nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of emotional abuse, child pornography, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On December 6, 2009, snow fell lightly on the roof of Susan and Josh Powell's home in suburban West Valley City, Utah, just 11 miles outside of Salt Lake City. 28-year-old Susan was exhausted. Her two young boys were running around the house, and she was struggling to keep up. This wasn't the life she dreamed of, but it was the one she had. Susan had spent the last few hours knitting blankets for her two sons. The one for her oldest, Charlie, had come out fine. But the other, for two-year-old Brayden, was a disaster. Luckily, she knew the perfect person to call for help. It was early evening when her friend Giovanna Owings came over. Susan wasn't feeling well and appreciated Giovanna's willingness to help out. As they made progress on the blanket, Susan's husband Josh went into the kitchen to prepare dinner. When they all sat down to eat, Giovanna thought it was sweet that Josh served Susan her food first, but she could tell there was some tension. Nevertheless, she held her tongue. Susan's marriage was none of her business. After dinner, they kept working on the blanket, but Susan was getting more tired with each passing minute. Soon, she excused herself, claiming she felt tired and was going to lie down. Giovanna stayed to help finish the blanket, but at 5.30 p.m., Josh said he and the kids were going out sledding. She took it as her cue to leave and glanced back toward the bedroom. She hoped Susan would feel better soon. But that wouldn't be the case. By the next morning, the entire family was missing, and Susan would never be found. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawned. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Today, we're looking into the disappearance of Susan Powell, a mother of two from a quiet suburb outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. Despite the Powell family's picture-perfect exterior, they were in crisis. After years of marital strife, Susan vanished on the evening of December 6, 2009. Two theories have emerged to explain what might have happened to her. Some believe that Susan may have dropped everything and run away with a lover. Others think that Susan never had a chance to leave because her jealous husband, Josh, murdered her. 
Susan Cox was a precocious 10-year-old when her parents moved to the suburbs of Tacoma, Washington in 1991. She was the third of four girls, and her parents were used to having their patients tested. The household as a whole was incredibly loving. They were also deeply religious and regularly attended a local Mormon temple. Susan's faith became a cornerstone of her life and dictated many of her decisions. She and her three sisters often played music and sang during church services. Her happy, supportive upbringing helped Susan grow into a confident, bubbly young woman. She was extremely outgoing, and her classmates knew her for her great sense of humor. She was popular and widely liked. By the time she started high school, Susan had planned out her entire life. She was going to marry the perfect Mormon guy and open up a business with her sisters, a beauty parlor groomer hybrid where pet owners and their animals could both get their hair done. They were going to call it Beauty and Your Beast. It was a fun, youthful dream. As Susan got older, her goals became more grounded, but she never let go of her love of the beauty industry. When she was 18, a local cosmetology school offered her a scholarship, and she seized the opportunity. When Susan graduated from high school in 2000, her future was looking bright. She dove headfirst into her classes at beauty school. She was often spotted around town in her car. Upon closer inspection, passers-by would notice a pile of practice mannequin heads strewn across the back seat. Susan's friends were always sporting new hairdos Susan had styled. While Susan worked hard in school, she was still completely committed to the church. And she was still looking for a future Mormon husband, which was incredibly important in her religion. The summer after she graduated high school, she began to attend singles functions at her local temple. There, 18-year-old Susan met 23-year-old Josh Powell. It wasn't love at first sight. When he invited her to a dinner party at his apartment, she turned him down. However, a few weeks later, Susan changed her mind and took him up on the offer. Maybe there were more people she could meet there. But surprisingly, at the party, she found herself drawn to Josh. He was a little dorky, but she liked his dry sense of humor. He was different from the boys she'd met in high school. He seemed more adult. Sure, he'd never gone on his mission, which was considered a prereq for a good Mormon husband, but he was in church now, so Susan believed his faith was pure. Plus, Josh was enrolled in the business program at the University of Washington at Tacoma, which meant he was thinking of the future. She decided to stay late after one of his dinner parties to help him clean up and wound up staying over. They talked early into the next morning, falling asleep while whispering secrets to one another. He told her of his parents' divorce when he'd been a teenager and the turbulent home he'd grown up in. He walked a tough line with his dad, who was not only agnostic, but staunchly anti-Mormon. Susan sympathized with Josh's struggles and admired his apparent commitment to the faith. They soon began to date. After only two months, Josh proposed to Susan, and she said yes. While it may have seemed fast to those outside of the community, to many Mormons, it isn't unusual. The couple was married in a small ceremony at the Portland, Oregon Temple in April 2001. 
Shortly after the wedding, they decided to move in with Josh's father, Steve Powell. The couple wanted to save money. After all, Josh needed to pay off his student loans. However, the life they found in Steve's home was less than ideal. The house was crowded. Several of Josh's siblings were living there with their families, too. And Josh's dad was odd. He often had his video camera on hand and recorded everything he came across, even the most private moments, and often without permission. That wasn't the only source of frustration. Susan started to feel pressure to put her dreams on hold. Josh was close to graduating with his bachelor's, and neither knew where they'd go after he got his degree. If he found a job out of state, she didn't know if she could finish beauty school. But Susan told herself it didn't matter. She loved Josh, so she was okay waiting for him to make the big decisions about their lives. In 2002, Josh graduated from the University of Washington, Tacoma, with a business degree. It was a joyous time for both. His hard work had paid off, and they were going to really start their life together. But Josh's various business plans never panned out. He lacked follow-through. He got an entry-level job, but they stayed at Steve's house. Josh couldn't afford to pay off his loans and make rent. And things were only getting stranger at home. Steve had taken an odd liking to his daughter-in-law. He regularly made awkward comments about Susan's body. She acted as if nothing was happening, only shrugging them off, hoping he'd get the hint. But Steve only escalated his attention. Susan could tell that someone was going through her laundry. Sometimes her underwear would go missing. She tried to ignore it. It might have been one of her young nephews just playing around. But she could never shake the thought that it could have been Steve, too. In 2003, things came to a head. Josh had considered becoming a commercial truck driver, and Susan went along with him to a practice class for moral support. She was waiting for Josh's class to finish when Steve called and offered to drive her home. She agreed. But on the road, he professed his love for her. Susan was floored, but she kept her cool. She laughed off his advances as nothing more than a joke and kept quiet for the rest of the ride. When they got home, Susan went to her room and waited for Josh. When he finally got back, she told him they needed to leave. It was non-negotiable. There were only a few places they could afford to go, one being Salt Lake City, where one of Josh's sisters lived. They packed everything and left on Christmas Eve 2003. For a year, the couple lived with Josh's sister. Then, in 2004, they bought their own home. Initially, Susan hoped this was a fresh start, but their marriage only went downhill. Josh couldn't hold down a job, and Susan had to pick up his slack. She gave up her dream of her own cosmetology business, accepting a job at Wells Fargo. Josh was frustrated by the turn their lives had taken and stopped attending church. Susan was even more disappointed in his lack of faith. But just as the marriage seemed unsalvageable, she discovered she was pregnant. Josh seemed really excited to be a father, so he and Susan committed to making things work. In 2005, Susan gave birth to their first son, Charlie, and then two years later, Braden came into their lives. 
Josh and Susan adored the boys unconditionally, but their love for one another was routinely tested. Josh was increasingly controlling. He criticized Susan for tithing or giving 10% of her earnings to the church. She, in turn, became disappointed in his lack of business sense. This was never more apparent than the time he decided to become an independent real estate agent. He'd never sold a piece of property before, but he signed a contract with the Yellow Pages for over $80,000 worth of advertisements. He quickly lost interest in the idea and stopped paying for the ads. It didn't take long for Yellow Pages to file a lawsuit. Susan worked tirelessly to bring in enough money to afford groceries for her family and work off Josh's debts. She was still a dreamer, but her dreams were a lot smaller now. She just wanted to be able to hold everything together. Her life was a far cry from what she thought it would be when she was 18. By 2008, their relationship was in shambles. She became increasingly worried that he would do something rash, but she stuck with him because of her unwavering Mormon faith. In the LDS church, a marriage is eternal and unbreakable, even if the couple legally divorces. God had put Josh in her life for a reason, and she wanted her kids to have a conventional family. And either way, she couldn't just leave. She knew Josh would do anything to keep the boys with him. She didn't seriously think he'd ever hurt his sons, but she wasn't sure he'd be so protective of her. Just in case, in 2008, she wrote a letter and put it in a safety deposit box. She told her co-worker that if anything happened to her, even if it looked like it was an accident, Josh had probably done something. She told them the letter would explain everything. Eighteen months later, she vanished. Coming up, the day Susan disappeared. Now, back to the story. Susan and Josh Powell had been married since 2000 and had two young boys, Charlie and Braden. But their life in suburban Salt Lake City was anything but ideal. Josh was increasingly controlling, but Susan didn't feel like she could leave her marriage. They were all last seen together on the evening of December 6, 2009, by a neighbor who was helping Susan knit a blanket. The next morning, Monday, December 7th, daycare owner Debbie Caldwell noted that Charlie and Braden Powell didn't check in at their usual time. She called Susan, but didn't get an answer. The boy's absence was unusual, and Susan ignoring her phone even more so. Debbie hopped into her car to visit Susan at home. There'd been a dusting of snow the night before, and more was on its way. The roads were a little slick, but nothing unusual for Utah. It was bitterly cold as Debbie stepped out of her car. She couldn't see that anyone was home, but it was hard to tell from the street. Debbie walked up to the door and knocked. No answer. She tried Josh's phone, but the results were the same. She peered in the window, but couldn't see anything. Debbie was getting worried. Only a few weeks before, another local family had been killed by carbon monoxide poisoning in their home. She hoped the Powells hadn't met the same fate. Debbie called Josh's sister, Jennifer, to see if she knew anything. Jennifer was just as concerned as Debbie when she heard the boys hadn't shown up for daycare. They decided to call the police and ask for a welfare check. 
Less than an hour later, a squad car rolled down the street and pulled into the driveway. The officer was polite and agreed to take a look around. He glanced through the window, but couldn't see anything. He asked Jennifer if he had permission to enter the premises, and she granted it. The patrolman broke a window and climbed into the house. Then he came around and unlocked the door for Debbie and Jennifer. The first thing they noticed was music. It came from a stereo in the living room, as did the sound of a box fan humming by the couch. The fan was pointed at a damp spot on the carpet and furniture. Something had been cleaned up. Since it was still slightly wet, he knew the family hadn't been gone long. They called out for the Powells. No answer. The officer checked each of the bedrooms. Nobody was home, but they noted a few clues. Susan's purse was on the cabinet in the hallway, and when they went to check the garage, the minivan was missing. Jennifer knew the Powells wouldn't just leave town without telling her first, and Susan definitely wouldn't leave her purse behind. They continued to phone Josh, hoping he'd answer and tell them that everything was fine. Jennifer couldn't bear to wait around in the eerily empty house. She went home where the hours stretched on. Still, no word from her brother and his family. While the clock ticked, the police department put together a search team. A few hours later, lead detective Ellis Maxwell arrived at the Powell residence. As he stepped out of the patrol car, he noticed a group of neighbors gathered outside. The neighbors were happy to talk to the detective, all defending Susan. She would never have done anything like this without telling them first. Her boys were her world, and she wouldn't just take off, disrupting their schedules. Josh, on the other hand, was a different story. He was impulsive. The neighbors hoped that this was just another one of Josh's last-minute trips, that he'd simply convinced Susan and the boys to come along. They'd probably come home soon. Meanwhile, word of the Powell's disappearance was spreading. At 3 p.m., Giovanna Owning, the last person to see Susan alive, got wind of the gossip. Her son was home from school and decided to call Josh. To his utter shock, Josh answered. Panicked, her son hung up. Giovanna grabbed his phone and called back. It rang, rang, and rang, when suddenly there was a click and a meek answer. It was Josh. Giovanna was quick and firm with her questions. Where was he? Did he have the boys with him? Where was Susan? When was he coming home? He should know the police were looking for him. Josh's answers came slowly, and he stammered through, slightly confused. He had his sons, and they were going to be back soon. Despite Giovanna's pleas, he quickly hung up. It was a relief to know Charlie and Braden were safe, but Giovanna couldn't shake a nagging feeling deep inside that all of the problems were just beginning. Two hours later, Josh called his sister Jennifer. She answered, but much like Giovanna, she was concerned by his tone. He didn't give a concrete explanation for where he'd gone, and he hung up abruptly. After getting off the phone, Jennifer raced over to the Powell house to wait for Josh. There, she found Detective Ellis Maxwell and filled him in. The detective immediately called Josh from her phone and told him he needed to come home now. 
At 6.40 p.m., Josh drove up the street, past the police cars and onlookers before he pulled into his driveway. Detective Maxwell was the first one to make it to the car. From the driver's seat, Josh only stared at him blankly. It seemed that he didn't care that so many people were looking for him. Maxwell saw the two children in the back, but there was no sign of Josh's wife, Susan. However, the detective noticed her phone on the passenger seat. He asked Josh where his wife was, but Josh said that he had no idea. He'd last seen her the night before, but he'd been gone all day. He'd taken the boys out on a camping trip. That answer made little sense. Why would Josh go out camping in the middle of the night with his two young sons? And why would he take his wife's cell phone? On top of that, it had been a Sunday evening, just a few hours before Josh was supposed to go to work. And it was snowing. Maxwell told Josh that he needed to come to the police station for questioning. Josh agreed and trailed Maxwell's car. He let the investigators know that he would help them in any way that he could, but he was adamant that he hadn't seen Susan since the night before. At the police station, Josh was taken into a small room. There, Maxwell asked Josh if he had any idea where Susan could be. Josh said he simply had no idea. Maxwell kept on questioning. Josh gave shifty answers. He claimed he'd gone to a place called Simpson Springs Campground to try out some new camping equipment. He said he'd simply lost track of time, thinking it was Saturday instead of Sunday. To Maxwell, Josh seemed extremely uninterested in helping locate Susan. He didn't show any sense of urgency regarding her disappearance. He just kept repeating that he didn't know why she'd left. Everything about their marriage had seemed fine to him. It was frustrating, but there was only so much they could do. Maxwell let Josh go after their interrogation. After all, he hadn't been accused of anything. At 9 p.m. on December 7th, 2009, Josh Powell drove home again and parked his van. Neighbors later reported that they saw the light in the garage all night long and heard the sounds of cleaning. By the next morning, word got out that a suburban woman had gone missing under mysterious circumstances. The local news station followed the case closely. Two days later, on December 9th, Detectives were back at the Powell residence, this time with a search warrant. They were going to see if they could find any new information that could lead them to Susan. In the living room, by the fan, they came across a few droplets of blood on the bottom half of the wall. They swabbed these and sent them back to a lab for tests. The carpet gave up no clues. It had been thoroughly cleaned and didn't have any traces of blood. The van was completely cleaned out. Police were only able to find the camping supplies that Josh had claimed he was testing. The next day, the investigators drove out to Simpson Springs, where Josh claimed he'd gone with his two boys. But the harsh landscape offered no clues. It had been snowing for the past three days, and any tracks that could have been left were obscured. It was a vast, desolate wilderness and the police were unable to locate his supposed campsite. To an outsider looking in, it appeared Susan had been killed and Josh was a prime suspect. 
His later behavior only made things worse. Josh quit his job after Susan disappeared, then pulled his two sons out of daycare. And on December 14th, he hired a lawyer claiming he was tired of being badgered by authorities. Ten days later, on December 24th, Josh was publicly named a person of interest in Susan's disappearance. It was the best that the West Valley Police Department could do. After all, there was still no physical evidence. Even so, suspicion was growing in the community, and Josh wanted out of Salt Lake City. From the sideways glances in the grocery store to the looks of judgment from his neighbors, he couldn't take it. On January 6th, 2010, Josh packed up his belongings and headed back to Washington. The police were powerless to stop him. A month after his wife went missing, he too was gone. And the moment he left, he stopped helping authorities altogether. The chances of finding Susan alive diminished. Coming up, theories on what happened to Susan. Was she a runaway in love or a victim of a tragedy? Now, back to the story. It had been nearly a year since Susan Powell disappeared on December 6, 2009. The authorities were fairly certain that she'd been murdered, but they had no physical evidence to prove it. Their main person of interest, Susan's husband, Josh Powell, was hundreds of miles away. He and his two boys were living in Puyallup, Washington, with Josh's father, Steve. He hadn't cooperated with the investigation since he'd left Utah. Meanwhile, Josh and his son settled in with Steve. It had been six years since Josh's father hit on his wife, causing the couple to move away. But Josh felt perfectly at home with Steve. Even better, the police attention wasn't so intense in Washington. And out of the spotlight, Josh could look after his boys without judgment. Meanwhile, he and Steve tried to answer the accusations with their own version of events. They had a theory, and they were going to let the media know about it. Josh and Steve said that Susan had run away to be with another man named Stephen Kocher. Kocher was a 30-year-old from St. George, a town in southwest Utah. They claimed that he'd gone missing around the same time as Susan. Steve and Josh had Susan's diaries and claimed that this wasn't the first time she'd lusted after another man. In fact, they said that Susan and Kocher had been entangled in an extramarital affair. Supposedly, Susan had left right after Josh went camping with the boys. She met up with Kocher and they flew away together to Brazil. Kocher was familiar with the country since he'd served his mission there. The news was shocking and completely out of character for Susan. It's nearly impossible to analyze this theory. Josh didn't offer any evidence to suggest that Susan had ever even met Stephen Kocher. In fact, phone records showed that there was never any contact between the two of them. Kocher also had gone missing on December 13, 2009, almost a full week after Susan. On top of that, while he was from Utah, He'd gone missing in Henderson, Nevada. Local security cameras captured the last time Kocher was seen. The video showed him walking down a cul-de-sac in Nevada, alone, 
to many, including Susan's parents, it seemed Josh was using this alleged affair to deflect attention away from himself. And he'd only want to create red herrings because he was responsible for Susan's disappearance. Susan's family and the local authorities long suspected that he'd murdered his wife. Even Susan herself testified to that possibility. After her disappearance, the police located her safety deposit box, the one she told her co-worker about. Inside was a videotape and a handwritten letter. In the letter, she wrote of her marital problems with Josh and how she feared for her life. If anything happened to her, she insisted that it would be Josh's fault. A few of her friends told authorities that before she'd vanished, Susan had given Josh an ultimatum. If they didn't fix their marriage, she'd leave with the boys in the spring. Allegedly, Josh couldn't deal with that possibility. Instead, he'd killed Susan and left her body somewhere out in the Utah desert. The evidence seemed to support this theory. A lab confirmed that the blood found on the home's wall was Susan's. Police also discovered that Josh had cashed out Susan's retirement fund and had placed a $1.5 million life insurance policy on her, where he was the sole beneficiary. However, all of this still wasn't enough to charge Josh. Police didn't have a weapon or even any conclusive evidence that Susan was dead. The best lead they had was the blood. But Susan had lived in her home for years. It wasn't unheard of for a trace amount of blood to have been splattered on the wall after a minor cut. And with two small children, spills on the carpet and couch were par for the course. Answers were elusive for Detective Maxwell and the West Valley Police Department. With Josh out of the state, it was even harder to conduct an investigation. As the years passed, they were unable to locate Susan, alive or dead. Since they couldn't find her, it was impossible to tie any evidence back to Josh, Coacher, or anyone else. But the Powell family saga was far from over. In September 2011, police in Utah uncovered a suspected burial site in the middle of the desert. Officials in Washington raided Steve Powell's home. He had a strong alibi for the night of her disappearance, but they hoped they'd find some kind of evidence, possibly something Josh had brought with him when he moved from Utah. Instead, they found countless hard drives full of illicit videos and images Many involved minors, and some had been recorded by Steve. The police also found old videos of Steve stalking Susan without her knowledge. On September 23, 2011, Steve Powell was arrested on charges of child pornography and voyeurism. Nothing they found in Steve's home could be used to explain Susan's case, and the search in the desert also turned up nothing. But Josh still felt the heat. The media attention in both states was back on the Powell family. Additionally, Steve was no longer allowed to live with minors, which meant Josh and his two sons needed to move. Josh claimed that he'd found a place to live, but the court soon figured out that he was lying. He was still residing with his dad. Custody was handed over to Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy, but Josh wasn't going to take the ruling lying down. 
he went to the courts to fight to get his kids back. After all, he hadn't been convicted of a crime, and the government couldn't just take his sons away. The judge ordered Josh to go get psychological evaluations to see if he was fit to be the boy's guardian. In the meantime, he was given supervised visitation rights. Josh hated that his boys weren't with him full time, but he always treasured the hours they spent together. He settled into his new normal as best he could, and he continued to resist the police's efforts to find Susan. By the time February 2012 came around, she'd been gone for over two years, and the case was cold. Authorities had discussed charging Josh for the crime, but they couldn't find any substantial evidence to ensure a conviction. They were helpless. However, they didn't let Josh know this. Publicly, he was still a person of interest, and with more searches in the desert planned, they wanted Josh to sweat. He professed his innocence to anyone who asked. He told them all he wanted to do was move on with his life so that he could raise his boys right. He was convinced that his sons were being corrupted into thinking he was a monster. He couldn't bear to see them turned against him, and a dark plan began to form. While Josh never admitted to any wrongdoing in Susan's disappearance, his actions on February 5th, 2012, painted a grim picture of what he was capable of. That morning, a social worker pulled up to Josh's newly rented house for a supervised visit. Charlie and Braden were looking forward to spending time with their dad. As the car came to a stop, they bounded out ahead of the social worker. She ambled up behind them as Josh stood in the entrance. The two boys ran inside, but before she could get there, the door slammed shut. It was locked. She knocked, but Josh didn't open up. She immediately called 911. Minutes later, Josh's lawyer received an email with no subject line from Josh. The message was short. I'm sorry. Goodbye. Outside of his house, the social worker was frantic. She didn't know what Josh was planning or what he was capable of. No one was there to help, and they wouldn't be for several minutes. A moment later, there was a violent blast, and the house was engulfed in flames. It had blown up. By the time the authorities arrived, the inferno was raging. Nothing could be done. Once the fire was extinguished, investigators surveyed the home. The bodies of Josh and his boys were found in the rubble. He'd intentionally set the fire and had attacked his two sons with a hatchet before the fumes got to them. The thin veil of presumed innocence could no longer protect him. The young family whose future had once seemed so bright came to an end because of Josh Powell. Given Josh's murder of his children, it seems almost like a foregone conclusion that Josh had a hand in Susan's disappearance. His accounts of the night in question seem incredibly suspect, and his actions two years later proved that he was capable. But there's still no hard evidence to prove Josh killed Susan, or even that she's dead. To this day, Susan Powell remains a missing person. No one has ever been charged 
with her disappearance. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Gone, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Scott Stronick with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Robert Tyler Walker with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. (laughs) 